More than anyone else, Yasser Arafat relished his role as the embodiment of the Palestinian national struggle. His kafia or headdress, was in the shape of historical Palestine. He and others claimed he was a defiant freedom fighter, but he would become reviled by many, especially in the U.S. and in Israel as an arch-terrorist. He suddenly appeared on the international stage as a peacemaker with the 1993 Oslo Accords. What led to this moment, and why could he not clinch the deal to create a sovereign Palestinian state instead of returning to violence? Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we will tell the story of important Israeli and Arab leaders and their contribution to Israeli-Arab relations over the last 70 years. My name is David Murkowski, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute. And I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. Yasser Arafat was born in Cairo in 1929 to Palestinian parents. He would move to the old city of Jerusalem when his mother died at the age of four. While attending the University of King Fuad in Cairo in the 1940s, he became active in Arab nationalist politics and smuggled weapons into British-mandated Palestine for Arab militias. In the 1948 Israeli War of Independence, Arafat fought in the Gaza area alongside Muslim Brotherhood militias, although he was not a member of the Brotherhood. In the 1950s, Arafat immigrated to Kuwait. There, he established Fatah, an organization that, over time, made it clear that it was dedicated to the armed liberation of Palestine, and this would be carried out by Palestinians themselves. In the early 1960s, Arafat moved to Syria to make use of its border with Israel to stage attacks. He was counting on Israel's retaliation for such attacks as a way to escalate further. Fatah was in competition with the Palestine Liberation Organization, or PLO, created in 1964 by the Arab League. The PLO was an instrument of Egyptian diplomacy and ran counter to one of Fatah's core principles, independence from the Arab states. The Arab defeat in the 1967 Six-Day War was shattering. The Arab states did not deliver, leading many Palestinians to realize that the solution must rely on Palestinian leadership itself. Arafat Fatah led a takeover of the PLO. Less than two years later, in February 1969, Arafat was elected chairman of the PLO. We are now stronger, more stronger than any period before. Arafat moved to Jordan, home to many Palestinians, to launch attacks on Israel. His strategy was to convince the host country that he was more responsible than other factions, but he did not deliver on his promise. Resulting in a Jordanian backlash, this became known as Black September, the civil war in 1970. It led to Arafat's expulsion to Lebanon, where he continued to use violence, generating the Lebanon war with Israel in 1982, leading to Arafat's expulsion again. He would wind up in Tunis without a border with Israel. Arafat narrowly dodged multiple Israeli attempts on his life, including an airstrike on the PLO headquarters in Tunis, which occurred while he was out on a morning jog. In December 1987, the Palestinian public, not Arafat, began the first intifada or uprising in the aftermath of a traffic accident. King Hussein of Jordan stopped asserting claims on the West Bank 
on July 1st, 1988. Now the pressure was on Arafat. Arafat now denounced, quote, terrorism in all its forms, including state terrorism, end quote. The question was whether Arafat was being genuine or being tactical in order to start a dialogue with the U.S. that had viewed him as a terrorist. In 1990, Saddam Hussein pledged that he had the weapons to, quote, burn half of Israel. Saddam captivated Palestinian opinion, and Arafat decided to support Iraq in the Gulf War, isolating himself and the Palestinians from the U.S. and most of the Arab world. In the fury against Arafat, Arab leaders in the Gulf stopped paying remittance taxes to the Palestinian cause. About 400,000 Palestinians in Kuwait were suddenly expelled. The Arab leaders, however, blamed Arafat. While Arafat was at his lowest point politically, Israel ironically gave him a life raft. In 1993, Arafat gave his blessing to secret, direct Israeli-Palestinian negotiations in Oslo, Norway. What began as quiet discussions with academics would be upgraded to talks with a select group of officials. These secret talks would produce the Oslo I and Oslo II Accords. My people are hoping that this agreement, which we are signing today, marks the beginning of the end of a chapter of pain and suffering, which has lasted throughout this century. The Accords created the Palestinian Authority, or the PA, headed by Arafat, and laid out a schedule for gradual Israeli withdrawal from certain parts of Gaza and the West Bank, creating Palestinian autonomous zones. Oslo was the first time in the entire century of the Arab-Israeli conflict that the two national movements, Zionist and Palestinian, agreed to the principle of sharing the land. As the parties continued the negotiations, radicals on both sides would try to derail the talks. Prime Minister Rabin, the Israeli champion of peace, was assassinated by a Jewish extremist. On the Palestinian side, a string of Hamas suicide bombers killed many in Israel. This led Israel's Labor Party to lose power. The question lingered whether Arafat genuinely opposed the attacks or whether he actually was giving a wink and a nod because he believed in the use of violence as an instrument for diplomacy. In July 2000, Clinton brought Arafat and the new Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak to Camp David to convene a summit to tackle the toughest final status issues. The summit ended without any breakthrough. With his time in office coming to an end, Clinton made one last attempt at peace, releasing the Clinton parameters in December 2000. Both the Israelis and Palestinians accepted the parameters with reservations, but Clinton considered the Palestinian reservations too many and too severe. In the end, the talks failed, and Clinton was not able to guide Israel and the Palestinians to peace. Much of the blame fell on the Palestinians and specifically on Arafat. Many claimed he would not sign an agreement because he was advocating for full return of the Palestinian refugees, not merely to the West Bank, but to Israel as well. This was widely viewed by Americans, let alone Israelis, as a non-starter. In his memoirs, Clinton wrote that when Arafat told them he was a great man, he replied, quote, I am not a great man. I'm a failure and you made me one. So how did Arafat come so close to achieving a Palestinian national dream for a state? I'm honored to be joined by two people who have spent most of their professional lives studying Yasser Arafat, Hussein Agha and Amos Gilad. They are among the premier Arafat watchers in the world, 
And I'm excited to say this is the first time ever they are appearing together in public. Hussein Aga was one of the Palestinian negotiators for the Oslo II Agreement and a close advisor to Yasser Arafat. He currently serves as a senior associate at St. Anthony's College in Oxford. Amos Gilad is a former major general of the Israel Defense Forces and served as a member of the Israeli negotiating team from 1992 to 1993. He's been a dean of the Israeli Defense Establishment. He is currently executive director of the Institute for Policy and Strategy at the Interdisciplinary Center of Herzliya. Hussein and Amos have different opinions regarding Arafat and the peace process, so I'm sure this will be a lively debate. Thank you, Hussein who is joining us from London, and thank you, Amos, who's joining us from Tel Aviv. So let's see if we could find some agreement amid the disagreement about Yasser Arafat. Would you each agree that Yasser Arafat's gift, among his many gifts perhaps, was his ability to navigate the Palestinian cause amidst the twists and turns of Arab politics? Hussein, I'll start with you. Well, it's not that he just navigated the Palestinian cause amongst uh the Arab states and uh, in the midst of Arab politics. He actually created the modern Palestinian cause after the establishment of the State of Israel, because before him uh, there was no distinct political Palestinian liberation movement. And he single-handedly, I would say, managed to put it together and uh, navigated uh, through rough waters with very little resources, with no geographical base, with no unity amongst these people dispersed all over the region and in the rest of the world, with no real allies who he could depend on, with actual hostilities from the various Arab states in which the Palestinians were there, especially when they started being politically active, and with really no ideology to really guide him where he wanted to go. So he did more than just navigate. He created it. He created it in his own image, and uh, with his demise, uh, we see that we're uh, really living uh, the last ripples of uh, the movement uh, that he started, and the current leader, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, is probably the last remnant of the Arafat uh, era, after which I think the whole nature of the game will change. I do think that Arafat, the way I used to describe him internally, he was very violent, against the Arab states themselves. Look what happened in Beirut. I was there, I have seen it. And in Jordan, it is almost destroyed it. He sponsored terror outside of the Middle East with the Black September, so-called Black September, and inside Israel. And extortion by terror, based on this violence and terror, he became the recognized leader. So in a way, I'm thinking of it frequently because for me, as Israeli, he is a mega-terrorist that took advantage of the terror in order to become the only leader of the Palestinian cause. He was uh, absolutely independent. I remember when uh, it's called in Arabic, yes, and it means that it was very difficult. He emphasized the independence of the Palestinians to decide about themselves, even if they didn't have their physical powers. So Jordan, for example, I've mentioned, Egypt, Gulf states, all of them eventually have recognized his unique leadership. That's added to him huge power. So let me ask you, Hussein, 
philosophically, you who met him, I think, what, starting in 1969 and was either with him as an advisor or followed him all these years, do you believe philosophically his view was that Israel was in the Middle East to stay? That's kind of an unanswerable question because he was a super realist. He knew that Israel was there to stay. But if you ask me, if the Israelis wake up one morning and find out all the Palestinians have disappeared, they'll be deeply unhappy. I would say, no, they will not be deeply unhappy. And similarly with Arafat, if you woke up one morning and found out there's no more state of Israel, he would not have been deeply unhappy. But uh, he realized that Israel is there and there are no prospects uh, immediately or in the short to medium term to get rid of it. So he had to deal so as to preserve whatever little he can get out for his own people. Don't forget, he's responsible for uh, talking with the Americans. He's responsible for talking with the Israelis. He's responsible for Abu Mazen. Abu Mazen without Arafat would not have existed. He would have been assassinated a long time ago. And not only that, he would not even have dared to say the kind of things that he believes in, except under the protection of Arafat. So all these, uh, they tell you something. Yes, it's true that he kept the radicals and he used them. But his tendency was, he knew that the resolution has to be political. But he understood that you cannot have a political resolution without violence playing a role. And he knew as well the limits of violence. I want to push you just a little bit. At what point do you think Arafat reached a conclusion Israel is not going away? You might be surprised, you might not be. The turning point was the October War. And the person who played the most important role in making him realize that was Sadat. And Sadat, not just by his trip to Jerusalem, before that, he had a, a certain rapport with Sadat, and he used to listen to him. And they used to have long discussions, during which I think he realized that Sadat was right. I have this story that I repeat always, because it's significant of his attitude. When the Palestinians were even invited to Mina House, there was a small meeting of Arafat, Abu Jihad, Abu Hol, uh, Saeed Kamal, uh, the representative of Egypt, and a few middle-rank cadres in Beirut in a very tiny office of Abu Hol. And they were all cursing Sadat and calling him a traitor. And uh, they were very, very much anti what he was doing and what he was about to continue doing. And Arafat was sitting behind the desk with his eyes closed rocking his chair and uh, almost totally disinterested in what is hearing. And then Abu Jihad uh, looked at me and he said, Hussein, you've uh, kept silent. Uh, why aren't you speaking? Uh, I said, I'm worried that what I say you might not like. Uh, he said, since when that stopped you, say it anyway. I said, if, if Sadat is successful in getting back Sinai without a war through diplomacy, and if you are successful in getting uh, some of our rights through the same method, What's wrong with that? That's superior to shedding blood and then uh, going to a violent way. The room went silent, but Arafat opened one of his eyes and he looked at me and he said, continue on what he's saying. I said, no, I don't have anything. I'm just, it's an observation. What matters is whether you're successful in getting your objective. And preferably, if you can get it without the spilling of blood, it's uh, more humane, it's superior, it's better. I remember distinctly using the term we are not enamored with spilling the blood. Uh, what we want is try to get our uh, rights back. And then, uh, you know, they continued about other things. And as everybody was leaving, and I was leaving, he held my hand 
And he said, do you have more to say about this? I said, no, not really. And he whispered in my ear and with a sign with his hand uh, denoting a slaying or the cutting off his throat. He said, I can't do that because of the Syrians. They will kill me. Amos, what do you think about what you just heard? My conclusion was in a way different at a different time when I used to share our assessments with our government. I do think he has never accepted Israel. For the time being, when he negotiated with us so-called, his temper, sorry to quote myself at the time, his vision was to have one big Palestine in the future based on state of Israel, like they used to say, 48, with right of return that is equivalent to destroying Israel from inside quarter million, 400,000 Palestinians from Lebanon, demographically and internally could destroy Israel, West Bank without Jews, and Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan would collapse anyway and would be under his control sooner or later. That was his vision. And to achieve it, he believed in violence. You have mentioned Sadat time. During the 70s, he launched the Fatah, launched rockets to King David Hotel, and launch attack from the sea on Israel that could lead to war with sheep and so on. It's totally different from the Egyptians. The Egyptians came to conclusion they needed to have some kind of peace with Israel. For the Egyptians, it was very difficult. But since then, it's, uh, I'm not sure it's flourishing, but it's making progress all the time. It was not the case with the Arafat. Arafat, Arafat was such a powerful leader that if he wanted, if he had different view, he could have peace with Israel because we were ready to give up many assets. And even Rabin, he didn't stop the negotiations because of the terror. My conclusion, you cannot have negotiations for peace if you are suffering from such terror. And today, that's why in Israel there is no trust in any kind of peace. That's one of the tragedies we do have today. It is true, I think, partly what Amos says, it was not clear in his head. He wanted a state, he wanted a flag, he wanted a passport, he wanted to go and come as a head of the state with the Palestinians having their own identity and their own entity. But, uh, you know, beyond that, I don't think he was really capable of thinking that far. The same way that when people ask me, what was Arafat's strategy? I tell them, that's an oxymoron. There is no such thing as Arafat's strategy. There is no such thing as Arafat plan. You live day by day and you try to accumulate as much assets as you can to improve the lot of your people. And that's it. And that's not a strategy. So uh, people, uh, on one hand, they overestimate him, especially people who demonize him. They think that, you know, he was this deep thinker who, who misled the, the whole world. And on the other hand, they underestimate him by thinking that, you know, he's not capable of delivering on his word. Neither is true. Neither is true. He, it was a very complex man. Uh, as I told my good friend, Shlomo Ben Ami, a long time ago, it takes a Talmudic scholar to really analyze the behavior of Arafat and fully understand it. But you have to admit, let's say, Hussein, that he's not the demonic figure that some of the Israelis have him out to be, Okay. But if he doesn't have a strategy for a peaceful outcome, Israel will say this is a big roll of the dice because he might not be as demonic as you think, but he doesn't have a plan to reach a solution. But the fact that he didn't is a problem. Don't you agree? That's a problem. 
Yes, but you have to understand the structure of the Palestinian decision making. There were different departments for the resolution or permanent status. That was Abu Mazen. If you go and discuss anything with him, he does not even know the concepts. When I briefed him on Abu Mazen Balin, he was not interested. I had to whisper in his ear. I said in the first paragraph, there's a reference to an independent sovereign Palestinian state. And that was it. That was it. That's all he cared about. We'll be back after this very brief message. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. In a certain way, listening to the two of you, there's a clear disagreement on the role of violence. But I am hearing one consensus point that I want to flesh out at Camp David and understand the end, which is this issue that both of you thought Arafat was not going to agree on the refugee issue, especially when it meant the refugees of Lebanon, that almost seems to think this is proof that he never accepted Israel. And your view is, no, he wanted a deal, but his minimum was greater than Israel's maximum. How do you square the circle between you saying Hussein, he wanted a deal, but he wanted a deal on his terms, and Amos's view is he didn't really want a deal at all, and how the refugee issue, if it was so central to both sides, then how did people get into a position to think that a deal could even be reached? Hussein, we'll start with you, then to Amos. Again, I have to refer to an incident. Do you remember that famous clip of Arafat refusing to sign something that had been agreed with in the presence of Mubarak and Rabin? Just for our listeners, it was the Gaza Jericho Accord of May 4th, 1994. They were on the stage. This is being seen live on every television network in the world. And in live time, Arafat refused to sign the maps. Then uh, Mubarak took him aside. According to the Egyptian media, I think it was, they called him a dog, and then he signed. But it was a lot of political theater. That's his position on the right of return. I'm not going to say anymore. His position on the right of return, I'm not going to sign it off, and then going along. But then he told you what he said to you, which is, don't do anything without bringing in the, the refugees of Lebanon. No, no, no. He said, don't forget the refugees of Lebanon. They are important for me. Find something for them. He did not say, I distinctly said, he did not say, you know, bring them all back to Israel. Amos, what do you say? First of all, he controlled the terror along the way for decades. The terror was supposed to be tool to convince Israel to push it for the peace of braves, namely with right of return. For Arafat, he used to say that it was like compromise. Instead of five million, he was supposed to be satisfied with the uh, 250 to 400,000. For Israel, it's like a nuclear bomb against the existence of Israel. That's what the idea of Arafat. He did have strategic way of thinking. And he used violence in Lebanon, in the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. And when he didn't want to sign something, he refused to sign. And in 1985, he was ready to be kicked to Tunisia. Again, I would like to share with you my assessment at that time and now in retrospect that Arafat did have strategic mind. He could lead both peoples to peace and he led to bloodshed. It's not for blaming him. 
I'm so sorry about it because now Abu Mazen, with all due respect, I do think against many Israelis that he's very courageous the way he's leading the Palestinians today. But historically, he will be judged harshly. We are not going to have peace treaty very soon. I do think we will not leave it all. Hussein, what do you say to those who say, look, Arafat was a revolutionary who could not live without a revolution? that he was good for a certain era of Palestinian politics, although, as you heard from Amos, he wasn't good for that era either, but that, you know, you needed a new leader to take it to agreements, and he was not someone who thought along those lines. And I'm just trying to see also how you see the spirit of Arafat influencing Palestinians today. As we think of what is Arafat's biggest legacy, how much does that spirit influence Palestinians today? First of all, uh, almost all the leaders of uh, all the world can be improved upon, uh, including in your country, in Israel, in the United Kingdom, and elsewhere. So to say that somebody else should have been there is neither here nor there. Uh, second of all, I think the influence of Arafat would increase uh, with the inability of Abu Mazen to deliver anything to the Palestinians, while Arafat had subscribed to a mixed policy that involved violence and involved diplomacy as well. Abu Mazen chose only diplomacy. He could not get anything. Arafat's mix got him Oslo, got him Gaza, got him Jericho, got him some of the West Bank, put the Palestinian cause on the map. Abu Mazen is well received by the chancelleries of the world, red carpet and all that, but he has nothing to show for it. It is sad because Arafat and Abu Mazen, Abu Mazen is a continuation of Arafat. Abu Mazen would not have been possible without Arafat. He could not have said or believed what he believed without the protection and the cover of Arafat. People seem to forget that. And Abu Mazen today, if you look at his position, it's much harder than his position under Arafat. There's a reason for that, because he doesn't have Arafat to protect him. It is ironic, though, that apparently Arafat and, and Abu Mazen, President Abbas, were not on speaking terms, it seems like, the last year or so of Arafat's life. Abu Mazen called the Intifada a mistake, the militarization of the Intifada a mistake. I mean, he was clearly a critic of Arafat's thinking during the Second Intifada, it seems to me. David, you should hear what Abu Iyad used to say about Arafat. You should hear what Khalid Hassan used to say about Arafat. I met with Khalid Hassan in London over a year and a half, during which he was convincing me of plans to overthrow Arafat because Arafat is no good. Arafat was kicked out from Fatah soon after Fatah was founded because the fathers of Fatah, the real founders, they did not think that he was fit for purpose. It means nothing. It means nothing. They were all. I used to sit in the ante room, listen to the people cursing Arafat, and then the door opens, he lets them in, and they start sucking up to him and doing everything he wanted to do. Again, it's complicated. The rules of engagement that happens everywhere else in the civilized world do not apply to our little, I don't know whether to call it a swamp or an island. But would you agree, Hussein, with this view that at the end of the day, Arafat was a revolutionary who could not live without a revolution. He was not interested in governance. That's what I meant by my question. He wasn't interested in governance. He was not interested in governance. You know, revolutions produce a, a certain revolutionary model for governing the people, for running the affairs of the people. He was not interested in that. 
to have uh, transparency in, in accounts uh, and to have uh, plans uh, for economic development meant nothing to him. Meant nothing. He didn't come from a generation where these things meant something to him. He was there to represent his people, to put them in the map, and hopefully get them bits of crumbs here and there, given the international balance of power and where he finds himself. That's all. Do you agree, though, with Amos in that regard, that in a certain way, Israel, if it was going to make a deal that was going to change its future, that ultimately it needed a more conventional figure because it was making agreements. You see, Israel is a rational state. Its leaders are rational. They subscribe to a certain notion of morality. They respect the meaning of words. They behave in a very advanced way. All these things are in contradiction to the primitiveness with which Arafat deals with his people and the rest of the world. So you have a clash of civilizations, you have a clash of cultures, you have a total chasm of misunderstanding. And it is almost uh, impossible at the time uh, to try to bridge it. Now, Abu Mazen uh, succeeded to some extent in bridging the gap, but uh, could not produce the goods in the process. It's very, very, very difficult. And I think, uh, despite the pessimism which I share with Amos, a lot has been achieved. There is a better understanding of each other. There's a better realization of the inevitability of having both people living there. There is an understanding that the models of trying to have everything by one party does not work. And these are achievements which we did not have 30, 40 years ago. Now, what comes out of these, I do not know. I hope a lot. But that's left to the next generation of both leaders and public opinion. And we cannot predict what they are. So maybe we can end on this happy note in a certain way. I want to thank you for a very stimulating discussion. I think you really shed light on some of the crucial issues that have really defined this conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. I really want to thank you very, very much. Thank you very much, Hussein. Thank you very much, David. Thank you very much, Amos. We just heard a fascinating conversation that I am tempted to say, I don't think you would hear anywhere else, because you really heard the two exemplar schools about Yasser Arafat. And it comes down to a fundamental question. Did Yasser Arafat accept that Israel was in the Middle East to stay or not? And they agreed. Violence was key for Arafat. But they saw that in a wider context, in a different, radically different way. So we saw this debate go on over our podcast about was Arafat a pragmatist or not? Another fascinating difference between Hussein and Amos was whether Arafat was the preeminent leader of the Palestinians in navigating their direction. And if you listen to Amos, he was a grand strategist who clearly navigated their direction. If you listen to Hussein, he, on the other hand, was someone who would go with the flow, whose leadership really came from popularity, and he wanted to know what was popular, and that led him in certain directions that he didn't necessarily intend. And that would suggest to me a lack of leadership. The fact that two premier Arafat watchers, like Hussein Aga and Amos Gilad, 
could not agree on whether Yasser Arafat was leading a direction or was led by the public, to me, suggests that many of the issues and many of the debates about Yasser Arafat's life and legacy are going to be with us for many years to come. What they also agreed on was the tragedy that Arafat might have had a lot of skills, but ultimately he was unable to bring his people to a solution. Thank you very much for listening. Please go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe, rate, and review Decision Points. And please tell your friends. I've also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross on four key Israeli leaders called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinator, Basha Rosenbaum, researcher, Scott Boxer, Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute, Richard Myron and Anouk Millet of Earshot Strategies, and Paul Woody Woodhull of District Productive. Thank you all.